As we open God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we indeed thank you that you are a God who is covenantally committed to us. You have bound yourself to our good, to our salvation, and ultimately you have given us yourself. You have given of your Son that our sins might be paid for upon the cross. He has risen to new life that we might walk in that newness of life. And now we are able to walk in fellowship with you and with your son. Father, these are amazing truths and realities and we thank you that we are privileged to be counted among those who know you. We know that it is not because of our good deeds, it is simply because of your grace and your mercy that you have chosen us that you have awakened us and you have applied the work of Christ to us. And for that, we give you praise. Please open our minds this morning as we open your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to please open your personal copy of God's word to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can uh, tap there on your phone or you can find it on the Pew Bible that's in in the rack in front of you on page 1046. We find ourselves in our exposition of the book of Luke in what is known as the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' exposition or teaching on the end times, on what is coming in the future day. For some, when discussing the end times, It's easy for them to veer off into speculations or theological curiosities. We can often wonder what will take place in the future, and all the details that are given us in in Scripture can incite our curiosity, and we can try, try to put all the puzzle pieces together, and we get preoccupied in trying to fit them together. But sometimes when we get so pulled into that puzzle making, we have a completed puzzle and a sense of accomplishment that we put it all together, but we can then miss some of the most important points that the scriptures are trying to make to us. For others, this discussion of eschatology or end times can seem confusing and seem like maybe a little bit of a waste of time. They wonder how it bears upon their lives today. Or they might ask the question, if I don't understand this, let's just say, that's great that you understand it, but let's say I never get it. Am I missing out on anything? I can still live my Christian life, can't I? To which I would respond, yes, you can live your Christian life. You can live it with the simple truths that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And yet, There's a lot more in here than that, is there not? We want to understand the Word of God, and and so there's things that we can miss. And so I would say that if we dismiss the study of end times, and there's three errors that we could be prone to, the first error is we can be tempted to disregard God's Word. If we're not careful, then we become the determiner of what's important for us. And we say, this is important and we'll keep this. This is not important and we'll push it aside. 
rather than letting the Word of God decide what is important for us and realizing that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for us in how we live. But not only could we be tempted to disregard God's Word, but we can be tempted, if we're not studying what the Bible says about the end times, to be fearful about the end of the age. People of all stripes, whether they're devoutly religious or whether they claim to follow no religion at all, are curious about what is coming in the end of time, curious about where history is headed. In fact, I would argue that everyone, no matter what their creed or no creed at all, actually have an eschatology. They have some view about what is coming at the end of time. For example, you'll hear a lot today about those who are transfixed by the looming catastrophe coming on the planet because of our failure to curb greenhouse gases and to shrink our carbon footprint. You read some of what they write about what is coming, the doomsday predictions, and it is like they're taking their script right out of the Old Testament prophets. And in all of this, we can be pulled into the fear, whether it's the fear about the failure to curb greenhouse gases or whether it's fear about even what the Scriptures say. But friends, Jesus does not want us to be fearful about the end. And so if we sideline eschatology, we can be tempted into this fear. But there's a third error that we could fall into if we sideline eschatology, and that is we can be tempted to forget who is controlling all of human history. We can slide into this view that history just rolls along, each day just comes, each not, not different than the next, and Sure, we know that God orchestrated some things in the past, but we forget that every day is part of God's sovereign will, that He is the one that is ordained that beginning from the end, that He knows where history is headed, and not just that He knows, but He is directing it. History is not about us. It's not a story of mankind. It's a story of God and His glory that He is seeking to gain for Himself through the redemption of sinners like you and me. He is the one that has determined the end. And so, biblical prophecy is not given just for our curiosity's sake. Oh, for those curious people, they can go read the prophecy. No, this is so that we, the people of God, are able to know that God is in control, that he has prophesied what will take place, and we can be confident that he will bring it to pass. And there is no one that can thwart his will. Friends, the study of biblical prophecy should strengthen our trust in our sovereign God. And so, this morning, we're going to continue our look at what Jesus has to say about the end, and I trust that this will help us in our trust of him and help us to avoid these errors. Jesus' words here are important, and we need to take them all in and listen carefully. Let's begin. We're not going to read all verses uh, 5 through 38. We're going to just read verses 5 through 11 again this morning to set our context for our time this morning. Follow along as I read verse Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, 
when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress its truths on all our hearts this morning. As we look at Jesus' words here, we're going to examine what is called the tribulation period. And in particular, we're going to look at what he said, Jesus says, about the two halves of the tribulation period. And as we do so, we want to better understand the Father's plan for the end of the age. Again, it is God's story. He's the one that's writing it. He's the one that's directing all things. And we need to know and want to know what he is doing. And Jesus here, acting as the premier prophet of all prophets, is revealing to us what will take place. In each phase, each, each half of the tribulation, Jesus has a word for us that we need to listen closely to. And so let's begin by looking at the first half of the tribulation period that Jesus prophesies. And particularly, he calls us to not be deceived or to be frightened. And we see this in verses 8 through 11 here in Luke chapter 21. We saw last week that this beginning period is called the birth pangs of the Messiah. These are the beginning of the birth pains, which meant that the, the judgment of God was coming upon the world. And this was just the beginning when the labor was just starting, as it were, before the, the world gives birth to the kingdom of Messiah. Jesus begins this teaching in response, as we've seen, to the questions of the disciples in verse 7 about the signs of the end of the age. And if we compare with Matthew, they are questions about when the temple will be destroyed because of Jesus' prophecy there, but also about his, his coming and the end of the age. Jesus answers by saying that there are two sets of signs. There are signs that designate that the end is near and other signs that designate this, the end has come. And these equate to the two halves of this future tribulation period. And all, all of the synoptic, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all begin Jesus' Olivet Discourse here with these same signs as we see here. The wording is different in between each of them, but they all describe similar signs. We looked, again, as we looked at last week, Matthew and Mark give us the language of the birth pains, and we looked at how that was a, a, a phrase from the Old Testament describing this time of Jacob's distress in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And by saying that these are the beginning of the birth pains, he's saying this is this time that is just beginning. So these are signs that will take place in the future tribulation period. And as we do so, we're going to see that even though there are exhortations for the people that will live through that time period, and I believe, as I'll show in a future week, that the church will not go through this tribulation period, 
But even though we won't be living through it, there's still much here for us to glean, much for us to learn from, that even for our own lives and our own day. And particularly, I want to call out the two exhortations that Jesus gives us in this, this passage. One is to not be deceived, and secondly, is to not be frightened. And so let's look first at do not be deceived in verse 8. He says, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And so Jesus begins his exhortation. They ask for the signs, what's going to be there? And he begins by saying, don't be led astray. There are going to be those who come in my name. They're going to claim, I am he. Or as the other gospels say, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. The time is at hand. And so this describes individuals who claim to be the Messiah or to speak for him, and they will claim Messiahship. And Jesus says that they shouldn't be led astray. They shouldn't go after these individuals. Now, as I alluded to in our first message of the series, that there are those who see all these events that are here in this chapter as being fulfilled in the first century that there is no future fulfillment left of these, that these were all fulfilled there in the first century, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And as we'll see, that there is the destruction of the Jerusalem that's here in Jesus' words uh, in this overall discourse. But believing that, I believe that these particular signs at the beginning of the tribulation will be fulfilled in a future time. Now, it is true that in the first century, there were many false prophets and false teachers that arose. You can read your New Testament to, to see that. You can also read other secular histories to see that there were those who arose and sought to sway people in the first century, Jews and even the church. But Jesus' warning here is not just about false prophets or false teachers. It's specifically about those who claim to be the Messiah, those, as Luke records it, that say, I am he or I am the Christ. And the reality is, is there's no record in the first century of anyone who claimed to be the Messiah. The first record we have of someone who claimed to be the Messiah is 100 years after Jesus in the second century, Simon bar Kokhba, And he led Israel to this, what's called the second Jewish revolt and Rome had to stomp them out then as well in 135. Now, we can look down through the centuries as well. Since the first century, there have been many false prophets or false teachers, those who have claimed special insight, those who have sought to lead uh, the church astray. And yet there are relatively few who have claimed to be the Messiah, which is particularly what Jesus is highlighting here. And yet in the tribulation period, I believe that there will be many, Jesus says, there will be many who will come in my name, he says, and say, I am he. There will be many false messiahs that will come during this tribulation period. This coincides with the seal judgment in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, where it describes a rider going out on a white horse to conquer. This white horse is meant to mimic Jesus' white horse. It's meant to be one that is imitating Christ, but they conquer the world, not through blood and through the sword, but as the illustration is a bow that is not armed, it's a, a bow without an arrow in it, it's going to conquer the world through deception, a bloodless conquering. 
I believe this indicates that this spirit of imitation is going to be unleashed on the world in this tribulation period. And so the disciples should have noted, even from this initial time, that Jesus is saying, listen, there's going to come a time when I'm not going to be here, but others are going to come and impersonate me, or others are going to come in my name and claim to be the Messiah. Of course, Jesus had already warned them of that in Luke 17, verse 22, where he says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Jesus says, I'm not going to be here. There's going to be a time when I'm not going to be here. But because of this reality, these false messiahs, Jesus gives two commands. Do not be led astray and do not go after them. Now, again, even though he is speaking to the, what is taking place in the future, Jesus' warnings here are helpful for us today. We don't have false messiahs that we are watching out for on a daily basis, but there are false teachers There are many who claim to speak for the Lord and to accurately teach the truth, and yet they mix truth with error. And this is precisely what makes false teaching so deceptive, isn't it? That it's not just straight out opposite of what the truth says. It sounds so good. It sounds so true, except for, and there's some piece of deceptive teaching that's in it. It's like a great feast, a meal that's placed before you, and it looks great, and yet there's poison in one piece of the, of the entree. It's undetectable. It tastes great, but it ultimately kills. And so we need to take warning to this as well, that just like the saints in the tribulation period need to watch out, so too we today need to watch out that we are not being led astray by false teaching, that we are making sure that we are testing all things by the word of God, that we see that everything accords with God's revealed word. The scriptures are our standard. And wherever there is strain from the scriptures, we must go far away and not go after such teachers. And yet, we live in a day and age when false teaching can proliferate like none other through the means of the internet and other forms of mass media. And so we, too, need to not be led astray. And might I say, we might need to make sure that our children are not led astray as well. But... There's a second command he gives here in this passage. Don't be led astray, don't be deceived, but then also don't be frightened. And I believe this applies to verses 9 through 11, the signs that he he gives here. These great events that are happening, and he says, don't be terrified. Don't be terrified. Let's let's look at each of these, beginning in verse 9. Look at it with me. He says, and when you hear of wars and tumult, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he goes on in verse uh, 10 to say, uh, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Here we see that in this future time, the world will be consumed by war and battles. And Jesus says that those who begin to hear of these wars and begin to see these things take place, they need not be scared. We need not be scared. Of course, he knows that we don't even have to see the battles. We don't have to see the wars for us for terror to rise up in our hearts, right? He says, when you hear of wars, isn't it true that you can hear of something, news of something taking place somewhere and fear can rise up in our hearts? And so Jesus says, do not be terrified when you hear these things. In that future time, the world will be consumed with wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. The picture here is great instability, that there is no more peace upon the earth. These nations are not living peaceably with one another. 
And great war breaks out across the globe. And this accords directly again with the second seal of Revelation chapter 6, which reads, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Peace being taken from the earth seems to be exactly what Jesus is describing here in Luke 21. This idea that peace is taken and wars erupt. But I want to draw your attention to a word that only Luke has in verse 9. He says, when you hear of wars and tumults, or maybe your translation has something different. It, it gets translated disturbances or commotions or even uprisings. It's, it refers to an unsettled state of affairs in the world, or you might simply call it chaos. When you hear of wars and chaos, Jesus says, do not be frightened. This chaos is when the social order is unraveled, when governments are toppled, when mob rule takes over, when there is no more peace and order found. Aren't those, combined with wars, precisely the things that can cause terror in our hearts about our own safety, about the safety of those we love? Now, there were many battles and uprisings in the Roman Empire in the first century, But it was not the worldwide battles prophesied here. There were skirmishes within the Roman Empire, but there were not kingdom against kingdom. The Roman Empire didn't fight against another empire or another kingdom. In fact, the first major battle of the first century was the campaign against the Jews in 70 AD. Even today, after centuries of warfare and now World War I and World War II, we can say with confidence that in the tribulation, it's going to be much worse. Something worse is going to be unleashed upon the world. But in light of all this, Jesus specifically says that when you hear about wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Terror and fear should not mark his followers, even when they hear of awful events around the world. These saints of the tribulation are not to be afraid because Jesus says the end will not be at once, which means that these are not the signs of the great labor pains of the tribulation. These are only the beginning of the labor pains. And so, church, for us today, if the saints of the tribulation are not to be terrified when they hear of the wars and tumults that erupt then, what does this say to us? It means that all the wars that we hear of today, it means that all of the chaos that we might hear going on in other nations or even in our own nation should not cause terror and anguish in our hearts. We are not in the tribulation, but of course there are wars in every generation. Nations always threatening other nations. The news is filled with uprisings in one place and in the other. And at times we can see the very fabric of society unraveling, can we not? And we are tempted to be afraid. We're tempted to be afraid for us. We're tempted to be afraid for our children, our grandchildren. But friends, we should not be terrified because we know who is sovereign and who is directing the course of history. There are things that must take place according to God's plan. He has determined the time. He has ordered our days. He has ordained for us to live in these days, for our children to live in these days, and we can live confidently in them. Why can we trust him in the midst of wars and 
rumors of wars around us? Because of his character. He is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Friends, we must cling to that. You'll remember that Jesus is our shepherd, and we need not fear any evil. As David reminds us in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear some evil, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so a question to ask yourself, are you trusting in Jesus and are you at peace with his plan for your life and for the world? Is your heart at peace with what he's doing? Are you at peace with the fact that he is at the steering wheel of history? That he is directing all things according to his will? Or are you allowing fear to take hold of your heart? Jesus says, do not be afraid. But this applies to not just to wars, but applies to the other things that will surface as well. Verse 11 mentions more things that will arise during this time period. Verse 11 says, there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. First he says, earthquakes, great earthquakes. These are not just going to be ordinary earthquakes. Every age has earthquakes. Every age, you could say, has great earthquakes. In the first century, there were earthquakes. You can read about them even in the book of Acts. And secular historians have written, recorded them. And even in our own day, great earthquakes occur. In fact, just recently, right? Last year, it was Turkey. Just a couple weeks ago, it was Morocco. These earthquakes continue to take place. But the question is, do these signify the beginning of the birth pains? Do these signify the beginning of this great time of distress that's coming upon the world? For as devastating as these quakes have been through history, the ones to shake the earth and the great day of the Lord will be unprecedented. Revelation 6.12 tells us the sixth seal will be accompanied with a great earthquake. And so as we see these earthquakes... Our heart needs to go out and be concerned for those who are suffering. Heart can break for the loss of life. It is staggering the loss of life that can come at at some of these natural disasters. But we need not be terrified. We need not be afraid. There's a third thing that is mentioned, and that is famines and pestilences. Verse 11, and in various places, famines and pestilences. Famines, obviously, a shortage of food, a shortage of the the world's food supplies where people starve then for lack of food. Pestilences refer to infectious diseases that refer, that spread through a population. Oh, something like a pandemic that may happen. The point of both of these, though, is that they bring about great amounts of death to humanity. And again, these correspond to seal judgments in Revelation 6, the fourth seal in particular. And so we see that the tribulation is a part of this unleashing of God's wrath upon the nations for their sin and for their rebellion. He smites them in various ways. He brings various cataclysmic judgments upon the earth. But even what's listed here, friends, will not be the worst of it. 
These are just the beginning of the birth pangs. The tribulation period will ramp up with intensity. And when the full labor hits, it will be unbearable, as we'll see. Now again, we can find instances of famines and pestilences in the first century and in every century since. But these by themselves do not signify that the tribulation has come or is present. They don't signify the end. And so we too, when we hear of famines, when we hear of epidemics, we do not need to be terrified. We do not need to be crippled in fear. It should cause us not cause us to begin to claim the end of the world because it is not until the tribulation that these will really begin to pick up. But there's a fourth piece that Jesus gives here in this first half of the tribulation, and that is terrors and great signs from heaven. Terrors and great signs from heaven. And these seem to be connected with the sixth seal of Revelation 6, which describes events this way. It says, The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. These terrors, which only uh, Luke talks about here, none of the other uh, gospel writers mention these, uh, these terrors, but it simply refers to those things that are a terrible and horrible sight. Those things that you cringe, you don't want to look at. It's horrible. It's terrible. And he combines it with great signs in heaven, great signs from heaven. These will include the celestial bodies, as we read about the sun and the moon, the stars. God placed those in the sky to rule the day and to rule the night. They are part of his ordering of creation. And so what is happening Here, in the tribulation, in the final judgment days of the world, is creation, in a sense, is unraveling. What was ordered is becoming disordered once again as God remakes the world. He's judging the world, and then he will make it new once again. Again, the the illustration of birth. There's this intensity of pains as as this new world is being birthed out. Jesus calls it in Matthew 19, the regeneration. It's something totally new. But these signs and wonders were prophesied in the Old Testament as well. Jesus isn't the first one to bring it up. Joel chapter 2 declares, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Similar language can be found in uh, Isaiah chapter 13 and in, in many other places in the Old Testament as well. These were prophesied to take place in the great and awesome day of the Lord, which we looked at last week, encompasses all of these end times events. I don't believe that the text in Luke, nor in the prophets of Joel 2, can be stretched to find a fulfillment of this verse in the first century, that the sun was blackened, that the moon was turned to blood. Again, we'll look more closely at those signs and... uh, as we look, as we get to verse 25 in a future week where the signs are referenced again. 
But these will all be signs that, that God's wrath has come upon the earth. And as we mentioned, that there's a verse in Matthew and Mark that Luke doesn't have, and that is that all these things, Jesus sums them all up and says, these are all the beginning of the birth pains. They're the start of the tribulation. More is still to come. But Jesus wants us to understand the plan that is laid out for the end of the age, and we need not miss it. And because we know the plan, friends, we need not be alarmed or frightened at things that take place, bad things that happen here upon the earth. We can grieve. We can be sad. But we do not need to be frightened as if we are being abandoned by the Lord or we are coming under his judgment. But let me say this. That to the world that does not know Jesus, to the world that has not confessed Jesus as Lord, there is reason to be frightened. There is reason to be alarmed. Because there is a day of judgment that is coming at the hand of Jesus. He came to save. He will return again to judge. And we need to be ready for that. I read to you these verses out of Joel about the great and awesome day of the Lord and all these things happening. But the verse that comes right after that, Joel writes this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. Creation's going to be unraveled. It's going to be a terrible, horrible day for judgment upon the earth. But everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Friends, that is the message that we as the church declare today. This is the message that the early church picked up that Peter preached in Acts chapter two, that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are able to be saved and therefore to escape that future day of judgment. And so let me just say for you who are here today, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you continue to live in sin and rebellion against Jesus, continuing to live life your own way rather than bowing in submission to him as Lord, then that future day does hang over you. The wrath of God will rightly fall upon you. But Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He stood in the place of sinners was crucified upon a cross and God then accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead three days later so that all who place their faith on him, all who look to him in faith, are able to be saved and to escape the judgment that each one of us rightly deserve. And so on the authority of God's word, I call you today to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Don't allow another day to go by. Don't think that you can continue to control your life today or tomorrow. You do not know how long your life will last. You do not know when your days are up. Either this final judgment day or the time that you will die and your physical life will end. The scriptures say that after death comes judgment. You'll be held accountable for how you've lived Look to Jesus today. Call upon his name. Be saved from the wrath to come. Well, we've seen first these events of the first half of the tribulation. Jesus has said, do not be deceived. Do not 
be afraid. But there's a second half of the tribulation. And this will begin with a pivotal event that is not recorded in Luke. So we're going to jump to Matthew 24 to see this. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Here in Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus mentions Daniel's prophecy and connects it to what he calls the abomination of desolation. Now that can just sound like a mouthful of Old Testament prophetic language, and it is that, but notice what Jesus exhorts us to do. There's a command that's embedded in this. Let the reader understand. Jesus is exhorting us, I believe, to understand the prophecy of Daniel. We can't just gloss over and go, okay, whatever. I don't know what's going on here. We've got to understand what Daniel is saying. And particularly the abomination of desolation. Now that phrase occurs three times in the book of Daniel. You can write this down in verse, Daniel 9 verse 27, 11 verse 31, and Daniel 12 verse 11. Abomination of desolation is found in Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11. All of them were prophecies when Daniel spoke them. But one of them has already taken place in history. And that is Daniel 11.31 speaks about something that has already taken place as history to us and actually history to Jesus at that point. It's recorded in the, in the apocryphal books of Maccabees. And that is where a future Syrian leader was going to desecrate the temple. This happened through Antiochus Epiphanes IV when he conquered Jerusalem. He stopped Jewish sacrifices. He slaughtered a pig upon the altar. Remember how Jews see the pigs are unclean. And so to offer a, a swine upon the altar was, was sacrilege. And then he set up an image of Zeus in the temple to be worshipped there. This was the ultimate uh, desecration. But even this would not be the ultimate. This was just a preview of the ultimate abomination of desolation that Jesus speaks of. And the abomination of desolation that, Je that Jesus speaks of and references in Daniel, I believe is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. And so I invite you to turn there to Daniel 9. We're going to try our best this morning to understand what Daniel is saying here. There is Lots of trees killed and ink spilled over this passage, and we will by no means exhaust it this morning, but I want to try to help to give you a framework of what Daniel's saying so that you can understand what Jesus is talking about. Jesus clearly wants us to understand Daniel, and so we need to look at it. Now, Daniel 9 begins as a prayer to God. In fact, it's one of the, the great prayers of the Bible. If you're looking for a, a long extended prayer, Daniel 9 is a great one to read. It's a prayer of confession. Remember, Israel is in exile. 
The Babylonians destroyed the temple, sent them into exile. Daniel is there in Babylon, and he's, he's recognizing that the 70 years of the exile are almost over as came through the prophet Jeremiah. And, and so he knows, okay, exile is almost over. But two chapters earlier in Daniel 7, he received a prophecy that there's going to be future suffering of Israel. And so he's going, okay, exile is almost over, good news. Future suffering for Israel, bad news. Okay, Lord, how does this all fit together? And so he begins to pray. A prayer of confession, a prayer of repentance. But then he begins to offer some requests in verse 16. Pick up in verse 16 with me. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Notice what is the theme of his prayers and his requests. It's his people, it's the Jewish people, it's the Jewish city, Jerusalem, and it's the Jewish temple, the sanctuary. And he's asking God to act. Well, verse 20, God begins to answer him and then while he's speaking. Look at it, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the, God, the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at, at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Here, Gabriel is sent to give Daniel an answer to his prayer. What is going to happen with Israel's exile? This seems like the exile is going to end, but there's future suffering that's, that's prophesied. And the answer then is given in verses 24 through 27. Now these verses, again, are notoriously difficult to parse. We're going to try our best this morning. I'm going to give you what I believe to be the best explanation of what is written here. I don't have time to back up uh, why I believe every phrase is interpreted as it is, but I want to try to give you a sweep of what is, of what is said here. First, let me read verse, follow along as I read verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks, Gabriel says, are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and, re and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. 
And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, what, let me, what is agreed upon by most is that these 70 weeks or 77s has to do with 70 sets of seven years. So you multiply that, it's 490 years. They're talking about what Gabriel is revealing to Israel, revealing to Daniel here is about 490 years of prophecy. What's also agreed upon by most, if not all, interpreters is in verse 26, you'll look at it, it says, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one or Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. That is agreed upon by almost all interpreters that that refers to the cutting off of the Messiah. That Je This is prophesying when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, that he is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means, is anointed one. That's what Christ means. It means anointed one, only in Greek. And so who is the Christ? Who is the anointed one? Who is the Messiah? It was Jesus. And it's prophesied here that he would be cut off, that he would undergo capital punishment, that he would be, have the death sentence and would have nothing. He'd have, he wouldn't be showing to be the Messiah with all the grandeur and the glory. He's going to be stripped of all of that. And that image of Christ upon the cross greatly illustrates that. What also is agreed upon is that the next phrase in verse 26 that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the, and the sanctuary. That this prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem of 70 AD. The very thing that Jesus is then talking about in the Olivet Discourse. So here we have the, slaughter, we have the slaughtering of the Messiah and we have the destruction of Jerusalem. But apart from that, there's great disagreement. <laughs> Those are two things that are agreed upon by most interpreters. Let me um, try to help you understand what's going on here. You'll notice verse 24, that there's six purposes of these 70 weeks. What's going to go on in these 70 weeks? Six things. And it's, it, they're identified with the word two. Two finished, two put an end, and so on. The first three are grouped together. The last three are grouped together. But before uh, we look at those, notice that what are these decreed about? Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. They're about the Jewish people and Jerusalem. We can't divorce this from the Jewish context that this is given. This, Daniel was concerned about Jerusalem. He's concerned about the temple. Now there's a prophecy that's going to be given about the city, the Jewish people, and the temple. And they're decreed. This is God's will. This is history that will come to pass. But six purposes. He says to finish transgression, to put an end to sin. I believe that this is speaking about Israel's rebellion is going to come to an end in these 70 weeks. Their rejection of the Lord will come to an end. And all of that is going to be because, it says, to atone for iniquity. What's going to, how is iniquity going to be atoned for? It's going to be because of the death of the Messiah. What happened at the cross? But of course, Israel won't have their iniquity atoned for until the future day when they look upon him whom they have pierced and they repent. But there's a second set of three things that are here. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up both vision and profit, and to anoint a holy place. These are things that will take place in a future day to Israel. When Israel becomes fully righteous, when their righteousness will not go away, when righteousness will span across the whole earth. It doesn't do that now, it will in the future day. To seal a vision and profit means it's, it's finishing. The, there's no more uh, vision and profit are no longer needed. And to anoint a most holy place, to anoint a holy of holies, to anoint a temple. To see, it's consecrated for ministry. 
And then he gives a prophecy of, of how this, uh, these weeks are going to work out. There's a set of seven. There's a set of, uh, of, of, se- of 62 weeks. And I believe that those seven and 62 weeks need to go together, which gives you 483 years. Again, don't have time to show it to you piece by piece this morning. But from the time that the decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 B.C., by King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. 483 years later, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. He was presented, this anointed one, this Messiah was presented to Israel. In that time, Jerusalem was rebuilt, obviously. At this time, Jerusalem's destroyed. The prophecy is Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But then as we said, after that happens, Jesus presented the triumphal entry. That's when the 62 weeks, or the total of 69 weeks, ends. And so, as I already read in verse 26, the anointed one's going to be cut off. Jesus was then crucified soon after he was presented to Israel. Then Jerusalem is destroyed, end of verse 26, as we already looked at. And then we come to verse 27. Verse 27, I believe, is the final 70th week, the end week, the final time, final seven years of this prophecy. And this is when the final plans for Israel will come to fruition. There's a, a future Antichrist who will make a strong covenant with Israel, as verse 27 says. And then in the middle, at half of the week, he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering. And he's going to put this, it says, on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. This is what Jesus is referencing that in this future 70th week, there in the halfway through the week, there is going to be this, this abomination of desolation, this extreme abomination that will be placed up, that will be worse than what Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes did. Jesus wants us to understand that this is still to happen. And he's now referencing in his Olivet Discourse, when you see that happen, then you know this is beginning to take place. This is the tribulation but it's not going to last forever. It's only for a week, seven years. And he says that this this Antichrist is going to put this image of abomination of desolation in the temple until, end of verse 27, the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. When God has a decreed end upon that future world ruler, the Antichrist. Friends, this reminds us that even when evil seems to have its free reign, Wicked rulers are not getting away with their schemes. God has a plan for all these things. He has decreed the end from the beginning. History is in his hand. This is the case with the Antichrist. It's true with all wicked rulers. Back in Matthew 24, Jesus declares that this second half of the tribulation is going to be unlike anything that's ever happened before. He says in verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being will be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This time will be unprecedented. It will be unique. And it will bring the end of this age. 
And it's in this unprecedented time of suffering, friends, that God will bring Israel to its knees. Israel will then repent and believe in Christ the Messiah. Right now, a partial hardening has come over Israel. They don't trust and believe. Yes, there is a remnant that's being called out of Israel that's believing in Christ and and trusting in him now through the church. But the scriptures have prophesied that the Lord will restore Israel as a nation. And therefore, in that day, all Israel will be saved. Soberly, we recognize that in order for Israel to do that, in order for them to confess Jesus as their Messiah, they've got to go through some intense suffering. God will bring a time of Jacob's distress upon him. But we as his people know that Christ is our Savior and we desire that Israel would know the Savior as well. And so we pray that Jews would come to faith now, that they would, their eyes would be opened. But we know that in that future day, God will ultimately win back his people. And so friends, I know these uh, pieces of the tribulation, the first half, the second half, these are, these are uh, not light and easy. These are things that stretch our minds. But we need to stand back and remind ourselves that God is the one who's in control of history. He's the one that's going to bring the end. And so we need not be led astray. We need not be frightened. And we need to see that God's word perfectly lines up. Jesus, Daniel, Revelation, all the pieces fit together. The word of God is perfect and it lays out what will take place in the future. We need not fear. We only need to trust. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, we thank you for your word that is, has given us many of these details. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to have wisdom and insight into these, that we might know what you have written and what you have given, that we might understand your truth and that we might live rightly in these days. We thank you that you have revealed these to us. And Father, I pray that we as a church would be able to rest in your plan, rest in your sovereignty, knowing that you have it all in control. It's in your mighty name we pray, amen.